Welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773's Broadway. This edition of the Jake Feinberg Show, Comedy on Power Talk. Thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And um, been off the reservation for a couple of weeks, and it is um, so. If I'm a little bit uh, excited, uh, there's a reason because uh, we got a new soundboard, and um, looking forward to continuing on uh, this journey that I'm on. As I head into the second decade of the Jake Feinberg show, the end is not in sight. As the great Napoleon Hill said, anything the mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. Being behind the microphone has become a yogic state for me. The topics on my show have expanded to the metaphysical, out-of-body experiences on the bandstand, relentless pursuit of unsung luminaries, spirit, wisdom, and altered states of consciousness. Not me pontificating, of course, but rather the artists themselves who don't shy away from the tough question. That's my job. Weave in and out of the dialogue. Go deeper. Ask follow-up questions. I'm looking for truth. It's hard to find. And I continue to be humbled by the accessibility of the musicians. They're not uptight. They groove. They swing. They don't romanticize, sometimes. And they write different chapters in their musical memoirs. Some fill with bright lights or dimly lit lanterns. In a lot of monotheistic religions, people listen to a pastor or rabbi or imam who serve as a conduit to divine wisdom and pass that on to their parishioners. When you're on the bandstand and everybody is on that frequency collectively, you're all a conduit to the divine. You get out of your own way and allow information to come through you. That's the salvation of music, when you realize you are only partially responsible for what you play or sing. My generation can perseverate over things that we love or that we're comfortable doing. The scary part is, oh boy, we got to get out and learn something new. We don't want to push ourselves out of our comfort zone. As a broadcaster, I could have submitted to the trend of politics, gossip, and controversy, but I decided to steer my show in a different direction. I wanted to interview artists about their contributions to our cultural heritage, more specifically how they define leadership, love, life, and lineage. I get a chance to do that today with an absolute shaman musician and a guy who um quite honestly when i first started hanging out with this group this cadre of authentics i i could tell he he had a presence to him which not everybody does and i wasn't quite sure how to approach him and 
Um, over time, uh, we, um, we bonded over uh, maybe a record or some music. And, you know, I realized at a certain point that he's just like me. And uh, in some ways, this individual represents um, everything that I stand for. And also, um, even when I do get lost in the woods on this journey, I recognize that it's people like my guests, uh, my guests, who keep me on the righteous path because they lead with their heart. Uncle Ben Knight, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to have you, brother. You know, um, I wanted to ask you, I, did you always have the capacity to uh, write songs? And if so, for you, did the lyrics come first or the music come first? Um, I feel like I started to be able to write songs. Um, you know, in like a high school band, we would just make up a couple of chords and then we had an actual singer. So I never had to think about that. And then same thing with the first band I was in in college. I just played guitar. Um, and then right about halfway through college, it definitely became a thing of like, well, we have to write songs. You know, everybody we were listening to were writing songs and it was like, okay, it hasn't all been done. It's still happening. So now we have to create as well. Um, I, you know, cause I was just transcribing my interview with, uh, David Nelson and he, you know, he was with Marmaduke, John Dawson, and New Riders, who, and that guy, uh, Dawson, was writing uh, songs every five minutes. So Nelson, like, um, he d never felt like he could actually write songs. And then, uh, you know, the disco days, the, as he referred to it, the disco, the dark disco days came into play. And he moved up to Petaluma, and his wife worked at the Grateful Dead offices. And she, this is in the early 80s, I think, and... Um, she was getting a Mac Plus, which at the time was the leading cutting-edge computer. So she gave him her Mac, and he went over to the music store. Well, he got a sequencer, Master Tracks Pro, and he bought some synthesizers, a couple of drum machines, and he started to write songs. Uh, and he sent them, and he would send the songs to Hunt, Robert Hunter, and Hunter said, uh, don't send me... Don't send me the words, send me music first. In any event, here's a guy who was a prolific bandstand performer in different musical settings, but he never really believed he could write songs. And I just wanted you to talk about, you know, in college when it became more sophisticated, you recognized that there was clearly more, there was still a lot more out there, as you said, how you learned to fuse poetry with, with melodies and, and music. I mean, I guess, I don't know if this is, you know, lucky or unlucky, but it pretty much never, ever happens the same way. <laughs> um, like, Explain you know, that. Sometimes yeah. I'll, you know, sometimes I'll have something on the guitar where I'm like, okay, this needs to be part of something. And then I'll build around that, and then, you know, maybe a melody or some words will come. Um, but probably more, you know, in the latter 10 or 15 years, it usually comes 
just from something silly that happens. Like I'll say, sing something to my friend on their way out the door. Like, or, you know, I'll be having such a good time somewhere and be like, all of a sudden it got so hard to leave, you know, and then <laughs> you just like, oh, stick that in the song because that's real. It's silly, but, you know, it's like there's enough songs that aren't silly that well i mean dude like, i mean you had people plenty of room for silliness yeah i mean sly stone someone would write down <laughs> on the back of a matchbook everyday people and the next thing you know he's singing that he's putting it to a song you know i mean it i think that's the part that um I, you know i wanted you to especially because i when i saw you sing that tune at fernwood with los hermanos cosmico um uh you know it was really just it seemed like an authentic tune that came out of you in some way shape or form and i think a lot of people try to reinvent the wheel when writing songs because they're when in fact um like you said there is no you know there is no uh roadmap there is no um playbook per se and otherwise you're you're dealing in a formula trip uh so i mean are you can you talk about the I don't know the first the first song that that you felt um, you could really put your stamp on is something that where you had fully fully had the lyrics and the music and and uh, and, and and could call it your own. Well, it's kind of one of the most perfect questions you could ask me because I'm in this really sweet spot of a circle coming all the way around right now <laughs> with a lot of the stuff that's happening with the Farmer Dave and the Wizards of the West. Um, Dave, I, you know, I've been playing on and off with him, you know, the whole time since Beachwood started, but pretty on, you know, the last four or five years, which whatever band he had, I would more or less be in it. Right. Um, but this current, ball of energy that is the uh you know the second farmer dave and the wizards of the west album that is uh being recorded right now um he picked one of my songs from like 20 odd years ago and is like okay this is you know this is one of our songs we're going to do this song and i just you know it was like either the most beautiful act of like a friend throwing a friend a bone or he was really onto something or, you know, somewhere in between, but it was a beautiful thing. And this song, it's just, you know, it's strange because I never really like recorded it or put it out, mm -hmm. but it's just been kind of kicking it around. And, you know, he always really would remember the chords to it. And so it would always be kind of one of like the funner songs if we were like, you know, practicing or whatever, it would usually kind of elevate everything and stuff. So that song is actually one of the first songs I wrote where I was like, okay, this is good. I like this. I'm, you know, happy about all of the things that are happening. And so for that song to now be like living and breathing and like happier than it, ever could have thought it would be <laughs> as a song are you can you can you can you can you give us the name of the song or is it under yeah the song's called god on the freeway god on the oh, see, i want you to go deeper on the idea when you when you first wrote it and you guys were it was like you said it was a an elevator uh it was a i mean it was 
a mood elevator. Everybody, it was a fun song. Can you just talk about the aesthetics of that song that that made you feel like you're like okay, I, I feel comfortable. What was it about? Was there because well, I, I was reading about Bob Dylan and how like when his when people started really being like, whoa, this dude can write songs is when there were like characters in his songs. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I need to write a song with some made up people in it. And, but also at that time I had, um, I had gone to college in LA and that's where I met up with, uh, with Chris Gunst and Farmer Dave. And then I'll, you know, of course, Brent and, um, the further Rademacher world. Um, and then, and Jimmy Tamborello as well. It was like a really sweet thing. But then I got a job that didn't totally work out after college, and I had to move back home to San Diego, which was great, but it was also like, you know, there was all this stuff happening. Beachwood was forming. You know, it was like a really super fluid and exciting time in like our little scene. Um, and I always, when I moved to L.A., I was always like, I'm never going to back to LA I'm just going there to go to college and like, get out <laughs> yeah. uh, but I found myself being like okay well I'm, I'm moving back to LA <laughs> I love it and um, so you know via Glendora which is like a whole nother beautiful story but hmm. um, so I was writing it from the perspective of like must I revisit the scene of my escape? Like I was like, I made it out of here and willingly coming right back. Did you, did you willingly, did you willingly leave though? Yeah. Did you willingly leave or I thought you, because the job didn't work out, you had to go home. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to, it's hard to say. I haven't thought about it that hard. Mm -hmm. Okay. I definitely didn't want to go when I left. But I also, you know, as a whole life thing was like, I'm not going to live in L.A. I'm not going to be one of those people. Um, Except the coolest. I mean, thank I God for your. I've lived yeah. here more than half of my life. <laughs> you know, I can ride my bike to the beach. Sure. I can ride my bike to work. And, you know, my wife and I share a car. She can ride her bike to work. She can ride her bike to the beach. So it's like we've got a sweet little slice of L.A. that, if you know, if I had to live somewhere else, it'd probably be a lot different somewhere else in L.A. So we've kind of lucked into this sweet place, and we've kind of been here, you know, sort of throughout this whole journey, you know. Did you, so uh, let's just, so the, the made-up characters in the, in the how, can you talk about the song form uh, and what you love? I mean, was it in 4-4 four, four time? Was it an odd meter? Did it have... Was there, I mean, was it, was, how, how close to a, uh, was there no formula to it, so to speak? Was it not a pop tune? I mean, it was kind of a pop tune. It was supposed to have this, like, recurring sort of tension where this part comes back sometimes, but not other times. And then sometimes when it comes back, it isn't where you think it might be sort of thing. But I just wanted this pretty thing to keep happening over and over, whether it was like the beginning of the verse or the middle or whatever. Um, 
And then, I don't know, we were listening to a lot of Ride back then. Mm -hmm. They had all these really super pretty ways of descending. So I just wanted to have a lot of pretty descents in it. Talking to Ben Knight here on the Jake Feinberg Show, first interview after uh, a little bit of a hiatus, and it's it's wonderful to be in this uh, in in this state of elevated consciousness with him, uh, getting out of my slumber. I just do you believe in the sort of the Socratic um, methodology in music that uh, where you uh, you have to know what you don't know, and that would mean like uh, you know you maybe just played a, a burning show and any contingent, and you know you you had a couple of places where you really took off and took a, you know not necessarily a long solo, but you know you just caught fire, and I'd be like, how did you do that? And you would say, I have no idea. You know, I mean, the idea that the mute. When did you recognize? That you were a conduit. I mean, the be- I think one reason you guys are so- make LA so tolerable, really. I mean, you you make LA a, a very a great vibe, and I know there's a lot of good cats around there. But um, I think the reason I gravitated to this cadre of people is because, um, well, I mean, I think everybody got the memo in some way, shape, or form that they are only partially responsible for what comes through them. And so you have to you have to surrender to the idea that uh, you know you don't you have to know what you don't know. And I wanted to know about your evolution with that because ultimately you've been in the music biz for a while. You've chosen your own route, but there are plenty of cats out there who really believe that they're God's gift to the world, and they take they think that they're fully responsible for everything that they do. Uh, it makes it incredibly unappealing to be around them or play with them. Um, and I don't ever get that vibe from any of the cats that we love. And, um, and I wanted you to talk about that. I mean, when did you surrender to the understanding that you were a conduit uh, to the divine? Well, I was really lucky to be in, in the tide from the beginning. And... I played, you know, bass for a couple of shows, but then we sort of reshuffled and I became the guitarist. Um, And then through a little bit of time, it sort of became, you know, a lead guitar role or at least, you know, co-lead guitar role kind of thing. And when we were going from like the first album to the second album, we were really a beautiful thing. It was a great band with Rick Mank on drums um and uh it was uh you know we were practicing enough to where the solos weren't long like there were just these little solos like, like solos and pop songs um but i just started deciding to play the solo different every time right i love it and i didn't i don't know why i didn't really have any you know reason to think that I could or should but I was just kind of like I'm, I'm gonna and it usually you know and it usually worked out and I just remember one time after practice our keyboard player Ando was like whoa there's like a new solo and I'm like yeah but that's that's just the way it's gonna be <laughs> and I mean when you made because like when you took over the role of 
of the lead player, at least you know one of the instrumental soloists. Um, pretty pretty quickly, you were able to sort of realize that there was a you could play the same solo the same way every time. But when you decided to just change it up, um, like how does it work? You know, metaphysically, uh, I'm just curious because I mean, it's not like you're. And I have to make the disclaimer that this was the. I mean, I knew about the Grateful Dead and the Almond Brothers. Right. And I, you know, had already loved, especially the Almond Brothers, loved a lot of their songs and stuff. But I hadn't yet, you know, gone off that completely weightless cliff <laughs> to where I was like, I oh, did, I did, I did. Oh, you know, which I very much have now. But right. this is, you know, 20 years ago or a little less than 20 years ago. And, you know, playing, you know, 30 seconds of something that wasn't written was like, whoa. Right. I did. But in some ways, that's the best. In some ways, that's the greatest time, you know? I mean, I just, like, in general, was it, yeah, I'd love to know, like, like how did you, because it was kind of a fuck it approach. I mean, you're like, I'm just going to play it different. Every Like, I love that attitude. It's, it's just, you, I don't think that, was that a learning experience for you to sort of um get out of your thinking mind uh be, to allow yourself to um find i mean if- you're definitely putting yourself in a place where either something's going to happen or it isn't so you you do make yourself a little more aware in that moment because you have to it has to come from somewhere and, and you have to be open to wherever it's going to come from or else you're going to be standing there with nothing. So at this point, when you say the weightless cliff, um, can you talk about, uh, you know, I didn't see you stretch out a lot, and I know that it wasn't necessarily the the venue, uh, which was uh, the Fernwood show. I mean, I, I, I was sort of waiting for you to take these blistering solos and it was a little bit more of just sort of a, um, well, it was a set. It was, it was a set for, for, it was a co it was during COVID, you know, it was mellower, but I mean, when, how can you talk a little bit about how you've learned to strike the balance, if at all, um, you know, you could look Frank Zappa or Jerry Garcia on a good night or, you know, some of the great jazzers, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, my philosophy about that type of playing yeah. is that you have to be able to not run out of ideas. That's what I want. So that was the question few, I had for you. Yeah. so few people that don't run out of ideas. Like, you know, Jerry Garcia, obviously, is just like the gold standard of not running out of ideas, no matter how long the solo is. Gold. And I, you know, I don't, I don't feel that way. If I take a really long solo, I sometimes feel like I'm sort of like repeating myself or, I mean, not all the time. There are certain scenarios, you know, at, you know, different band practices we've had or just sort of less formal scenarios where it seems like we can go on forever. But in terms of like, you know, you're up there on stage and it's your solo and you're on, um, I definitely, you know, I feel like I experience sort of a limit on more often than not on like how long I could just go before I'd be like, okay, someone else's turn. Well, that's what I wanted to say is like um, over time, 
you know, how often is it that you, you know, in your in the course of the more recent career, would you, um, you know, think that you, or when you would listen back to something and you thought it was super hot and you realized that uh, you were repeating ideas? I, I guess that's the, I mean, I'm just asking you as an improviser, somebody who's grown as an improviser, how have you learned to not wank it? How have you learned to say, okay, I've said my piece. When do you know that? Is it just, is it, <laughs> is it like, uh, because... I mean, do I mean, because like Jerry had synesthesia, so I think there were times where like when he was soloing, he'd be like tasting something, like some delicious succulent food, or he'd have yeah. be having multi and so he couldn't stop, and and it wasn't even it wasn't a conscious thing. So I just wonder, like, yeah, how no, have you learned? No. How have you learned to say what you need to say because uh, without uh, just uh, wanking it? You know, I don't really you, you uh, music is not overly precious for you, but at the same time. Um, you are a cra- your craftsman. So how have you learned to strike that balance? Well, I'll get a little bit of a commercial in right here. I'll do it. Um, I, on Friday, I was with uh, most of the people from the Wizards, Farmer Dave and the Wizards of the West, and we, we have a stream that's available um, till the end of this week. Um, and it's just eight bucks through Folk Yeah. And it's us playing a lot of the songs from the album that we just recorded, but it's back in December, so... It's a little bit of a time machine thing. Mm-hmm. And then we also play the last song from the first Farmer Dave and Wizards album on there. But So we're watching the thing, and our our super sweet drummer, Chad Marshall, he was uh, sort of making a comment about he never knows. He has to kind of be on his toes about when to come back in on a certain part actually in the song <laughs> we were talking about before yeah. because sometimes I'll do it for 40 seconds and sometimes I'll do it for four minutes I love it I love it and I think that that's kind of answers the question is that it's just the scenario you know you know when there's four minutes in there and you know when there's 40 seconds in there you know just based on you know how warm you are and where you are in the set and where you are in the world or just any number of things. Can you talk a little bit? I mean, how has the band, when you listen to those songs, I got to, I'm going to get the stream and, 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 and listen to and and watch the show myself. But, um, December wasn't that long ago. Do you guys feel like you've even, that the songs have changed since then? Well, in our world, it's, forever ago because <laughs> we recorded an album you know we recorded the album in january mm-hmm. and then you know we so it's like it seems like a really long time ago um but uh you know and then like the holidays are in there and it was just you know it's been a, a beautifully chaotic world in wizard's world um but I mean, it's not done, done, the album. We've, you know, we've done done all of the basic tracks and tons and tons of everything else and so many beautiful backing vocals and some of Dave's best singing I've ever heard him do and, uh, you know, 15 songs. Super duper exciting. So, you know, we've just been like, for us, every day has been a week and every week has been a month. So it seems like a long time ago. Well, Ben Knight, we have a 
game on this program called Name That Voice. I'm going to put this voice in for you right now. Take a listen to the content. We'll come back and break it down. Similar. You know, like I'm a little bit scrappy. I don't really have, you know, the, I don't have like the virtuoso qualities that, that I admire so much in others, you know, but I do have some personality. I got a little moxie and, uh, and I find my own way of playing simple things to give it like a bit of my own kind of, um, I don't know, flair. And some people can tell that it's me. Um, and really the, like that, that stuff comes, those are compensatory, um, you know, methods really like a a lot of times if you don't have a whole lot of ability, you kind of make up for it with like personality and you make up for it with in other ways. And I do that all the time. That's what my style is. Um, it's all compensating for what I can't do. I feel like Mel Brown, I get that feeling from him um, when I hear those records, and uh, but he was you know he was such a he had a wild kind of reckless like almost going off the rails kind of quality to his playing. There's great humor in his playing too. It's kind of that kind of chicken, chicken not chicken picking, but that kind of scratchy thing he had could like it just makes me laugh sometimes. You know, there's just a there's a joy and a humor and kind of a whimsy in it that I love so much. So yeah, like, you know, I'm inspired by him a lot. Uh, trying to get more humor into the playing. It's always a, it's always like a, something I'm trying to get out of the Mel Brown records. And he's very underappreciated. I think he was from LA, right? Um, ben, now you want to take a guess at who that is? Well, I know who it is. <laughs> I know you. Yeah, well, that that you know, and it's a. He can just... I change all? Can I change all of my answers to what he said, please? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I played that for the. I mean, listen, I, mean, I knew. No, I mean, I really like everything he said. Is like yes, that right? You know? Exactly. Just well, I mean, it's just everything just applied, yeah. applied to me, obviously. <laughs> hugely different scale, but. But everything he said, I'm like, dude, no, that's exactly. 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 No, I mean, dude, Ben Knight, dude, you are, I mean, listen, his presence (laughs) is here right now. I mean, I got uh, an electric wave up my, uh, you know, inside the, you know, I feel like um, I just want. I got the electric wave too, but let me tell you really fast. Do it. I'm such a Mel Brown head, but (laughs) my massive disclaimer is that. I never went to Mel Brown Town with Neil. Like somehow, how, how did that happen? Somehow it never. Well, I don't know. There's just so many beautiful records, and we were just on so many exactly trip, yeah. surfing record, musical, guitar, otherwise. That there's luckily so many beautiful trips that we never went on that one together. But like. That that Mel Brown music has gotten me all the way through, you know, pandemic, COVID, whatever. I, that this is so beautiful. I'm, so, you know, I mean, to know that. And you, I've yeah. just gone so deep with it, and just like it's turned. It, and it, I've found so many other crazy records that maybe he plays on a song, or maybe he plays on the whole thing. And it also is like a has affected the band because. We have another guitarist now, Katie Skeen, and she and I bonded heavy over Mel Brown. 
And in some ways, strangely, it like made us such good friends that Dave saw our friendship as an asset and just like threw it into the band. And I kind of give Mel Brown a lot of credit for that. Well, (laughs) first of all, I I, I was like, (laughs) it took me a minute um, I was trying to find that soundbite from my second interview with Casalk. I'm like, this is going to make Ben smile because he's just talking, really to, talking about Mel. <laughs> I mean, and then I hear Katie in those little clips that Farmers put up. And I mean, it's it's getting really funky. And I, I mean, it's and and I just think that it's great that they um, that that Mel has has continues to inspire and connect. And I him and Neely are definitely you know, trading licks up and up somewhere else in a different form. Um, I, you know, some, the, the stories vary. Uh, I've, you know, again, you know, out of school, people say, Oh, uh, you know, Ben and, and Neely met in Ventura and, and on the surf. But can you talk about when, did you meet Neely when you went back to LA for the second time? When was the first time you met him? The first time, I think, like, we had been in the same place before and, like, nodded to each other or something. But the first time I know that, like, we spoke and met and hugged and stuff was actually my birthday. Um, It was the the year was 2001, or no, was it? Yeah, it was, like, (sighs) either that or early 2002. But it was the... It was the Beachwood Sparks band that had put out Once We Were Trees, and then when they went to go tour it, they took Neil with them. That was when Neil first um, played with them. Sure. And that was like when they went on tour with the Black Crows. But when they came back from that, I think they did like some European stuff, and then they did some West Coast stuff. I don't know like in which order. But however it was, they ended up at the Troubadour on my birthday, and... You know, normally I would play some of the set with them, but Neil was, you know, he was their guy and had been their guy for a while as like, you know, the fifth fifth guy in the band. Um, But, you know, it was, you know, it was my birthday. (laughs) So they were like, you know, come down and play the encore. Sure. So Neil is far, far stage right. I'm far, far stage left. And we're playing... Looking for a Love by Neil Young and By Your Side, the, the Sade song. But I just remember looking across during the Neil Young song, we were just like smiling at each other. And I'm like, okay, friend, you know, ding. And then after the show, you know, we just talked and hugged and, you know, been in touch, you know, kind of ever since, sometimes all the time, sometimes only, you know, once every couple months or, you know, we both had went a lot of different ways for a few years. And then I super reconnected with him when CRB happened. Um, you know, we had seen each other a fair amount, you know, in the time in between. But then once that started happening, we got super reconnected. And I think that's when around when he moved to Ventura and, you know, we would surf together and buy records and, and so on. I mean, can you, because... So I just need for my own well-being. I, I mean, because me and you were obsessed with Mel Brown, obviously uh, Neely. But I mean, can you talk about uh, going to the you know record dives with a classic a records that you 
you and him uh, obsessed over and maybe one day even found in a store. I mean, I just, to me, like, you know, you talk to his friends on the East Coast, musicians. I mean, he was, uh, drummer Dan Fadell would say that, like, uh, when Ryan Adams and the Cardinals was in New York, uh, you know, it would be like six or seven in the morning and Neely would be calling him from the city saying, like, I can't hang out. I can't deal right now. I, I got the whole day to, I got to come out to Jersey and, you know, take a break. And, you know, he, next thing you know, he's out in Parsippany and they're getting Indian food and then diving for records. I'm like, can you, can you share a great, uh, I mean, what were some of the albums or people off the grid cats that you guys really got off on any genre? Um, well, usually a record shopping trip with him would be courtesy of either no swell in the ocean or too much wind in the ocean. It was always like surfing first, but you know, the, uh, obviously the ocean and the weather is fickle enough to where we got to do plenty of record shopping. So. And Ventura's, you know, really good for record shopping. There's, like, big stores, medium stores, little stores. And uh, so, you know, and people selling lots of good records. So it's always turning and nice up there. Um, oh, God, some of the stuff. I think, I mean, it's kind of silly to say because spirit is like such a regular part of my like daily religion now of course but definitely one of the first spirit records that i got interesting he was we were just like i was like i don't know i'm intimidated they have so many and he's just like we'll just get that one and then get every other one <laughs> and, you know so on and so forth and that was like right around the same time Farmer Dave had played me Spirit of 76 on our way back from Big Sur. Um, so I was just like this like this spirit fruit getting ready to be eaten. <laughs> that is so, wait, oh, spirit, so a spirit, there's a spirit album called Spirit of 76? Um, well, that's, that wasn't the one that I bought. I think the one I bought when I was with Neil was the second spirit album the family that plays together stays together well no because what's just so amazing is uh well there's a whole other now we're going down a whole other rabbit hole Emil richards my dear uncle vibraphonist put out a great album from dante's which was a great jazz club in la in the in the 70s called spirit of 76 i gotta send that to you it's an amazing freaking album that's a whole other uh, deal. Wow. Yeah, no, dude, I can't believe. I thought when I when you said Dave Farmer Dave played you Spirit of '76, I'm like, this. You have to be kidding me because I have it on. I can't wait to foist that on you. That's one of the hippest albums of all I time. I mean, I have to double check, but I'm pretty sure Spirit of '76 came out in 1975. I have to look on the freaking. I'm gonna no no. I'm gonna go um, after that album. Um, I don't even know that album. I couldn't but, believe it. Oh man, you're gonna love it. It's like. Such a really beautiful version of like a Rolling Stone. That's like he sings in this beautiful, like high voice, and uh, got an amazing space guitar solo with all crazy delays. And it's like no, not another version of like a Rolling Stone. But I promise you, this is so it's so worth it. Oh, I, I mean, it's it's. I actually play when I do the odd, you know, solo show. I. I like to play like a Rolling Stone, and it's it's like seventy percent spirit, 
twenty percent. Dylan nineteen sixty six live in England. Wow. And then ten wow. percent my own. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, so you really going back to this idea of characters in a song. Um I mean that first song, I I going back to um, God on the freeway. God on the freeway. Who the were the characters? Here's Who were the characters? Commercial. Yeah, go ahead. Here's another commercial. It's fine. Yeah, God yeah, yeah. on the freeway is in the stream. You can hear it. It's like the third or fourth song we play. Oh, I cannot wait for eight <laughs> bucks. Go to uh, folk. Eight yeah. bucks. Eight bucks. Yeah. I love com. the plugging. You you really are a radio guy. That's the thing. <laughs> Farmer came through from from New Mexico a few months ago. Yeah, I've only had physical contact with some cats, maybe three or four. I mean, I. I feel very fortunate to to have been healed by music very little during COVID, but the times that I've had, it's been very cathartic for me, um, and I miss it deeply. But Farmer came through, and we were doing a, an interview, video interview, and I, I mean, I have it uh, clear as day and put it up, put up the uh, clip on Instagram. It it blew my mind, man. He said. Well, he's just said it in a lot of different ways, and I know you're you're gonna you know you're gonna brush it off because that's kind of the person you are. But he said you were the st- the straw that stirred the drink. You were the Babe Ruth of the whole thing, and he said that at Loyal Loyola Marymount, you were already on the radio before him and Gunst came aboard, and uh, you hit them to all sorts of crazy music and. And everybody, Brent said the same thing. You are the, I don't know what the right word is, the source. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty heavy compliment. And I don't need you to toot your own horn, but can you talk about being, I don't know, somewhat of a shepherd at that radio state, KX, I don't remember the call letters. but KXLU, yeah, KXLU 88.9. <sighs> it was at Loyola Marymount, and yeah, I got involved with it right away um um you know when i was a freshman because i just you know loved music and i'm like whoa people are sending free records in here and like there's all this stuff i've never heard before (laughs) that sounds like all the music i love but it's just like you know all these different worlds you know and pale saints and swerve driver and i'm just like whoa you guys are amazing (laughs) (laughs) and uh and then I became the music director by the time I was a senior. And um, I think Dave was a sophomore and uh, Jimmy and Chris were freshmen um, when I was a senior. But, um, you know, we just all loved music so much that we just, you know, got into it on any level possible. And I, I would play with them. And then those, um, Jimmy and Chris got into further as, as uh you know additional members that's the er further <laughs> right right you know brent and darren and uh so you know I've, that's and then that's to go back to the song that we're talking about god on the freeway that was kind of the stuff that was happening that made me be like i have to come back because you know like the scene, you know, was coming up around all of us that went to school there, and then it was meeting up with this other scene. Um, and then, you know, there's also other people involved, like this guy Rex Thompson, who knew crazy, 
crazy obscure 60s and 70s music mm. that was always just right. Always just right. I mean, you need to have a whole a whole trip with Dave about Rex. Who, who's the, wait, wait, about this Jimmy Cat? Who's this Jimmy Cat? I don't know who this Jimmy Cat is. Jimmy Tamborello is actually, um, hopefully you won't mind me saying, right, he's kind of the most successful musician amongst us in terms <laughs> of success. Oh, man. Wow, dude. <laughs> where, in, where's he at? Uh, hmm. He has a band called Dintel, D-N-T-E-L, and they put out really, really beautiful music. Um, he's also... Um, you know, had a whole bunch of other different monikers, but he made all the music for a postal service. Wow. Which, um, wow. You know, which is, uh, not only is it really great music, but it, you know, did incredibly well and, you know, continues to. It's like timeless music now. And it's interesting because back when I would be writing God on the Freeway and like, coming up and visiting and playing with Chris and stuff, he would disappear to his room sometimes and just like work with his synthesizers. And if I'm being <laughs> um, totally honest, sometimes we're like, man, I wish he'd come out here and hang out with us. We're having so much fun out here. And, uh, but you know, it, uh, it's good that he was working on those synthesizers. Let me, I mean, you just said a word there and I, I need to ask you, because I, <clears throat> you know, um, we just, you know, I think people like us, uh, I told you last yesterday off on the phone that, you know, um, you recognize that, you know, really the only way to inspire change is by affecting positive change in your own world. Uh, you can't really um, deal with a lot of issues that are out of your control and you use this word um success and you know um for so many people uh that the brainwashing has been so severe um and i can't really point necessarily the finger at any one in particular except maybe they just the the culture of capitalism and the culture of commodifying things and and having little toys and, you know, and I remember even talking to, when I interviewed John Densmore and he wrote a book about uh, literally having to take Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger to court um, because he did not want them to use, uh, you know, they were going to go on a Doors reunion tour, but he said, you're not using the Doors. You want to put the new Doors, uh, Doors of the Future, whatever it is, Brother Jim was the one who told us we're not going to, you know, sell our souls out for this music. And, um, you know, he just said that, you know, those guys, Robbie and Ray, they came from kind of low middle income, middle class backgrounds. And once they got the brass ring, it got so tight, they couldn't let go. They were just the greed factor. And so for Ben Knight, what is your concept musically of success um it's a good question because there's so many examples of people that had quote success that dave and i were just having a deep deep talk the other morning about the band dire straits oh. 
and they're you know those first albums are so amazing they got so good they were playing arenas and we're watching this 1985 video where it's just like it's not even people playing music it's just like sorcerers floating around <laughs> shooting lightning beams everywhere exactly. like the band is just so deeply hot and able to do literally anything but then we're like okay well what's what's the next album what's the next and it's like it you know i'm sure i don't want to be i haven't listened to their last album enough to be like dismissive of it and i'm sure one day i'm gonna like love it so much and laugh about this but you know it's like that ball of energy everything was so perfect in that band. They were playing Wembley, they were playing Live Aid with Sting, like it was just like so amazing. And then it just seemed to sort of, you know, we read this thing where where Mark Knopfler said it became more about being famous than it did about the music. Exactly. And so it's like, I would define success as staying well far from that line. But still being treated well and respected for what you bring to the table. And I don't know, I occupy this, sometimes I feel guilty because I occupy this spot where like my day job is pretty solid and, but it also gives me allowances of time to, you know, get away and do things if, you know, if the scheduling is right. And Neil, getting back to Neil, he used to be really, really vocally, you know, jealous of my lifestyle that I used, that I'm able to have the security of not music isn't what's feeding me or, you know, moving my household along, but still being able to get in there and, you know, play good shows with great bands and with really fun, amazing people. Um, so, you know, in some weird, corny way, I'm kind of super successful right now. Uh, dude, I, I mean, I remember Spursky in one of our interviews, he said that, um, that after, I think it was after the, the Beachwood tour and it was a rugged tour. I mean, it was after nine 11 uh, the Black Crows audiences were um, pretty Americana. Um, uh, they didn't always appreciate Beachwood. It was rugged. It was tough. I think the whole thing, uh, Spursky said, uh, Neil broke out in a full body rash because of the stress. They were kind of all. They were young. They were making fun of each other's clothes. It was not. Uh, Cr was really sweet to them, but the, it was a turbulent tour. And they get off the road. They finish the tour, and. You know they're heading home, and Spursky looks over and he's like, "What are you doing?" Neil's like, "I got, I got, I got to go back out. I got to go. I got work to do." He's like, "You're not going to take any time to to decompress." And he's like, "I can't," because that was what was feeding him. Obviously, he lived for music, and I think that nobody's more passionate and nobody loves music more than you. But I think you're right, man. I think the balance is key because ultimately. I mean, can you talk a little bit? Just, I mean, I'll definitely yeah. cop to some jealousy, though. I mean, I'll cop to... Mm -hmm. There's been many times over the years where I've seen my friends go out on tour when it's during the school year, a tour that either I couldn't go on, you know, for whatever reason, and be like, why do I 
why do I keep myself saddled to this thing when I could just be gypsying it out like everybody else? <laughs> that's na- yeah, like, that's totally uh, natural. I love it. <laughs> you know, so it's like I'm not going to just sit here and be like, I never think that because it happens all the time. But, you know, so sorry. Go on. <laughs> no, I, it's fine. No, I mean, I, <laughs> so classic. I mean, can you just talk about, I mean, here's the point, you know, you love to surf, you love your family, um, <clears throat> security is key, and you get a chance to play with really righteous dudes and women and play music to get stuff out of your system. So you kind of have everything. Um, I never thought that that live touring of music would become, quote-unquote, a wedge issue in our country, but... Um, you know, it's a kind of a twofold question, you know, before the pandemic, uh, you know, it seems like a long time ago, but, you know, I think back to all sorts of different bands, doesn't matter what they were. They were touring a lot. A lot of people were playing a lot of shows. Um, but I don't know about, um, how well they were being compensated. In fact, I know they weren't being compensated well at all. Um, and now I look at it and I say, you know, I'm hearing, you know, I just wonder coming out of the pandemic. I mean, the one industry that has not come back at all is live touring music. Um, they put fans in the stadiums for sporting events. They put people on airplanes, um, schools may or may not reopen, but most every industry has come back. But the only way you can make music money in music today is what you just talked about is by hitting the road. And I wonder about if you could just kind of philosophically talk if you had if Ben Knight was given the the microphone so to speak at a um, an event where you were trying to um, you know inspire and encourage people that had the purse strings so to speak as to why a musician should be seen as a viable profession. I mean, let's face it. I mean, your teaching gig gives you security, insurance, stability, and you like doing it. Um, And then you can play music without that angst of, well, um, I mean, are we even, is it even worth doing? I mean, of course it's worth doing it because of the spiritual part of it. But I just wonder, in your mind, if you can talk about, because I just believe, you know, you go back to the 50s. I've done so many interviews. You know, Dizzy and Miles, Coltrane, I mean, those guys no, were I just, uh, I would say thank you so much for saying that, because yeah. that really, you definitely hit on something that that is an issue, because I'm friends with so many people that, they have to be treated a certain way or else they can't pay their rent. Exactly. And one way I've been able to, and it just bums me out for my friends that don't have this luxury, but you know, I've, I've still able to have that attitude of like, you're going to let me play a show. I know. It's so great. I'll come play. Yeah. Right. Right. You, uh, oh, do we have a show? There's no money. Let's go. You know? <laughs> That's and so it's beautiful. Like, yeah. 
Uh, you know, but it's like uh, it, it can't be that way, you know. And that's um, right. That and that's why I'm uh, upset because it can't be that way. Like, it can't it be, that way. be that way. You know, and it's it's just like this this you know, it's kind of like that line, that success line we were talking about. It's like the other end of it, you know. Exactly. There's the you don't want to become the arena band that loses their soul, but you also don't want to lose your soul, you know, being treated like crap for you know, doing something that's actually really beautiful. I mean, you, you go back, I mean, uh, you know, bass players with Joe Henderson would take trains to Poland and feet of snow and be playing brothels and maybe they get $400 a week per diem, but the cost of living wasn't so great. Um, so it's so nice. It's so cool for you to have that lifestyle, but like why it's assuming let's just say there were layoffs and or whatever let's just say you made a different decision in your and you were so horny to play music that you had to become a professional musician and you know you cast your fate to the wind what when you everything is so quantifiable in our society everything is so data driven now i mean there's no and music is so unquantifiable and so non-tangible and it's so spiritual and i just you know for people that might hear this 20, 30, 50 years down the road, long after we've left the planet, why should music, why should a musician be seen as a viable profession? Um, I mean, ideally, they can do something that can change everything. You know, it's almost like Bill and Ted level of like wild stallion, you know, like it's, you know, it's, you, you have the potential I love it. to change everything. I mean, music, it's, you know, popular music. I don't, I don't want to speak too much about it because I don't listen to that much of it, but it's that I don't know that it's like, I don't know. It's like, there. it's just that the potential that the whole world could all be singing one song at once is still there, you know? And it seems like it's come close to happening a few times. You know, not that that's necessarily the goal, but just the idea that, like, people can just hum these things that, you know, and then there they are forever. I'd like you to talk about one of those times that we where uh, collectively we got close, you're talking about concerts for Bangladesh. Like what, what year, when did we get close to reaching that frequency where it was recognized that uh, the universal language of music could heal, uh, potentially heal the world? It's just an opinion. There's no right or wrong. I just think of, no, no, I hear you. I, yeah. I just think of like... You know, and it's all perspective, too, because maybe the whole world wasn't all... But I don't know, just like certain, like, you know, like a, a Michael Jackson song, like Human Nature mm -hmm. or something. Like, there would be a time where that was just all you would hear, and you would go into the store, and then you'd come out of the store, and then the car would go by, and then, like, you know, just, you know, the, uh, you know, not that we have to go there in the whole Michael Jackson personal side of things but you know there's like a song that the whole world is singing that has a really beautiful message or like the man in the mirror or something like that you know um or you know going back to like a song like ohio by crosby stills nash and young 
you know, just all these different things where, you know, music was, was getting people through something either really horrible or really amazing or just making them feel like, okay, well, this is how humans feel. Cool. That makes me feel less weird. Mm-hmm. I dig. I mean, I wanted, this is really important. Um, you know, can you talk, I mean, just talking to you now, like, you know, it's, it's like, uh, it's obvious that, you know, you've been impacted heavily by the swell of the water and the waves, the buoyancy of the water. Um, it's too cold. I don't, I have a pool where I live, but, um, it's too cold to swim and it's not heated. Um, can you talk a little bit about how water and maybe more specifically surfing has, um, has maybe kept you sane and and helped you, uh, you know, with your equilibrium and anxiety, if, if that in fact is true? Um, it is. I mean, it's, surfing is like a super momentum based thing in my life where, like, if you're doing it a lot, all you think about is going to do it again and that wave that you caught. And But if you're, like, sort of forcing yourself and it's just, like, once every couple of weeks, you're like, oh, you know, my feet are going to get sandy and I have to, like, you know, pay for parking right. or, you know, whatever it is. You think about all the negative things. But when it's good and when it's right, it's just, like, it's just part of a beautiful part of the routine. You know, you just kind of figure out when the tide is going to be just right, and you build your day around that. And luckily, all of the friends that you know know that you do that, so they don't try to talk you out of it, <laughs> which is also a really important thing, having friends that recognize that the tide and the wind sometimes, you know, sometimes are what you have to plan around. No, I love that. So, um, I mean, you're, when, you're, when you're sort of in that inconsistence phase it's you're thinking about everything but the surf but when you're in the flow yeah you're like yeah. oh i'm never gonna find a parking spot or oh, there's so <laughs> many guys out there and one of them's gonna yell at me because <laughs> i'm riding the wrong kind of board or right, you know it's right, like right. there's 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 a sadly there's like a kind of a, a pretty dark <laughs> this is really why there's, a, there's an the undercurrent to, the to this whole thing yeah so the blissfulness of <laughs> surfing is a thing i mean it's sadly it's comes from a supply and demand thing that mm-hmm. so many other bummers come from but um you know there's only so many beautiful waves and there's a bunch of people that want them do you feel like it's helped like i mean how did that growing up in san diego were you on a board right away from like how did you um you know learn to i got be- into it just because i had i had friends that were you know, getting into it at the same time we were skateboarding and like watching surfing on TV and the natural thing was just to want to surf. And I'd always been in the water, you know, boogie boarding and stuff. I was lucky enough to spend, um, four years in Hawaii from six to 10 years old. And that definitely is something that, you know, obviously changed me and I carry that with me. And I would, Super, you know, you and myself and Clay from Mapache, maybe Sam too, 
we need to have a deep, deep whole nother episode, oh. series of episodes about Hawaiian music. But Huge. just that, there's just something about the Hawaiian, you know, just the water and just the gentleness of that that, you know, hopefully, I think, you know, kind of informed my vibe at least somewhat. I mean, I, I, I got to read you this quote. Um, doing a lot of background on Ben Knight before the interview. Uh, it's from Aaron Spursky. He said, Ben is a soft-spoken Buddha bear. He serves the music through his demeanor and chemistry he brings to any given project. It's that soft, focused vibe that takes the music to a whole other level. He's also had pivotal, great contributions and moments within Beachwood Sparks. One time we were tearing down our mics on Once We Were Trees. We had recorded about 17 songs and were done with the session. Ben comes into the room and says, wait, I think we should record By Your Side by Sade as a cover. We listened to it and decided to give it a play. With the remaining three mics on the drums, we quickly knocked that out. And that ended up being the song that paid back all of our loans to Sub Pop Records. We developed a whole new group of fans because of that song. That's one of Benji's whispers on the wind after the, after the fact. He plays a really distinct role from my position in the band. He's never been one to bend things to his will or way. He's got a Buddha vibe to him. And I, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that that's about as high a praise as you can get. Basically, you know, following the muse, also having like, um, impulse and a taste and a recognition to say, wow, I mean, we're not going to just like, you know, we're not going to wring all the soul out of something, but let's take a chance on this and let's do so. It's all about aesthetic and point of view, intuition and instinct. And I just kind of wanted you to talk a little bit about like, you know, as you've gone along musically, how you've learned to trust because as far as, I mean, you're not, you know, I mean, you're more of a street scholar. You know, you didn't come out of the academy. And over time, how you've learned to learn to trust your instinct and intuition and know that the most beautiful things can come from that. Well, if you're talking Buddha, dear, I have to pass it straight up the line to Chris Gunn. Right. You know, even though he's younger than me, I think of him as like an older Buddha brother in many, many ways. And he, I was, I mean, I guess it's just being who you are, no matter what you think somebody might think. Because I was listening to George Michael, and I just like never stopped liking him. And he would put out an album like every six years, and I would check it out. And sometimes you'd even have to get it on import. Right. <laughs> he was like that disrespected and that far out of like commercial favor. And Chris comes over and he's like, this is so good. And he's like, you know, if you like this, you have to listen to the new Sade. And like another person who puts out an album like every six years. And so we're digging that together. And that was like, you know, Chris reacting to me, listening to something that, you know, the average Beachwood fan wouldn't be expecting me and Chris having a conversation about George Michael and Sade. But, you know, that was just us being real and listening to what we loved. And um, that led directly to, you know, what Aaron described there and that song just sort of being in our, in our heads or in our world. 
And I actually got to play one of Jay Maskus's guitars on that song. So that's a super cherished memory for me for, you know, lots and lots of reasons. You know, it ended up in a movie. And like Aaron said, it ended up, you know, helping out with some debts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you are, <laughs> for, to me, like, you dude, you're like the stuff. guy, you are the guy that is the glue to a championship team, a, a band. I mean, it's, it's, it's under what it being yourself. I mean, has that, you know, I talk about that a lot because I think that the more that you can be vulnerable and that you can make mistakes, especially on the bandstand. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I can't think about it. I just have to go in a different direction. Then it opens up all these new doors in the music and you find your own voice and your own sound and being yourself, but it's so much easier said than done. Um, I mean, I mean, it's layers. It comes in layers, you know, like meeting the meeting Brent and Darren and further and all of that scene. Um, that made me peel a layer of, you know, whatever, I don't know, peeled off a layer where I felt like, okay, I'm a little more around people that are just super into what I'm into. And then moving on from that into like the Beachwood world and like that whole scene, we were able to be ourselves like even more. And, uh, and then moving on a few years ahead, uh, the CRB scene and like reconnecting with Neil. And then I was lucky enough to become one of their DJs. You know, I would DJ for them pretty I regularly. It. Really? I don't think and I strangely, really. Yeah. Strangely that put, that was during some years where I was not playing that much music. I wasn't not playing as much music. I had had this band called Honeycrisp that was a duo that you know we'll have a whole nother honey crisp episode no we, we're just getting day. yeah no, this, this is we're, we're but, this um, is great, man. but you know that was sort of you know reaching you know coming towards its conclusion and the farmer dave wizards thing as it is wasn't quite up you know to where it is right now and there was a couple years there where i would play you know the odd tide show or the odd thing here and there but mostly i was probably djing you know a lot more than i was playing but i would also be watching crb playing two sets you know three nights in a row or whatever so i was being musically educated i feel like during those years heavily just massively frontally educated <laughs> by total masters on a super regular basis i don't even you know listen and, we we okay so 71 minutes we in the books i mean should we continue do part i i just feel like we're the momentum is uh we've got the fire lit should we should we pick up part two uh maybe next week sure sound good no that sounds fantastic i just you know there's a lot uh you know man it's like there's just so much more to get to not even historically but just like as we move forward societally culturally um and i feel like you know you're in a really unique position to be to bring element elemental stuff to the table uh that is not always seen but can always be felt and we always have to continue to feel uh, we can't lose the ability to feel and become so 
devoid of feeling that we become calloused and ignore the, the realities of, like you said, the, the pain within the world. And ultimately, um, maybe, um, you know, for Brent and Darren and <clears throat> Dan Horn, Mapache, all these guys who I, I cannot even imagine uh, not being able to essentially do your what their yoga is for over a year. I mean, can you say that, um, I mean, you don't have a crystal ball. I, I, do you believe, do you have any words, uh, inspiration for your peers and your, and your musician friends? Uh, do you worry that um, the longer this insanity and virus goes on that, um, I just don't, I don't want any. I don't know. I think there's a lot of, I think that there's a lot of things about how music was being presented to people. Yes. Had gotten really formulaic. Interesting. Yes. Really, just how the way a club was run, how the way sound was run, how the way sound checks were run, how the way schedules were run, the way tours were like all of these things were the way they were because they were the way they were. So here's my positive message is that when we come back, we can rebuild it in the image that we would like to see rather than jumping right back on what we were doing. You know, and that's going to take everybody. That's going to take the people that run the clubs and the people, you know, if there's record labels or just any of that stuff. But the reason I think that is because in my day job we're definitely doing that when we go back to teaching in the classroom we're not going to it's not going to be like it was before all of the things that we learned about how to do things differently some of those things work so well that we'll we better just hang on to those things you know and not just throw them out And I think that, you know, some of the things with some of the webcasts we've been doing, some of the ways people have been creative about having shows where it's still distanced or just, I don't know, people are getting outside of the box to make certain things work. And I'm just hoping and thinking that some of these out-of-the-box things can, you know, continue when we go on to this next phase of whatever live music can become. I think that's where we're going to pick up uh, in, in set two, uh, Ben Knight. It, it is. I'm very humbled to have connected with you, man. You, your presence is strong. Um, your vibe is strong, and uh, you know I'm, I'm uh, mad props to you, man, for being yourself. Uh, heavy quote about guns. Well, let's let's bookend with one more commercial, dude. No, you, I want to say, per, what if do you want to get off your chest? What do you, what do you got to? Per- Hit it. Go well, ahead. I just want to say one more time because we talked about it in the middle and we talked about it in the beginning, but it seems like one thing that's kind of gone throughout our conversation is like this this song, God on the Freeway, oh and kind God. of the ideas behind it because it is super angsty. And like when I wrote it, I'm just like, we were watching that movie, um, the movie Vanishing Point, a lot. And Chris Gunst used to joke with me, like, I don't know, some of your songs you sound like a like a Kowalski, like you just can't take it anymore kind of a guy. And, you know, it's like a little bit that kind of a song, and it's never been in better shape. And if you want to hear it, you can hear it on the stream because Dave was such a sweetie pie, and he put the song in the band. 
and it's living a really healthy, happy life right now in Farmer Dave and the Wizards of the West. That band is living a really healthy, happy life right now. We just released our first album, um, Dave and myself and a couple other Sweetie Pies, Brian Bardis and Judd, uh, were, were that band. But that album actually came out while we were recording the second album. So we were kind of feeling, Dave and I were feeling you know, pretty awesome about that. Like, okay, we're making an album, we're releasing an album, we've got this live stream in the can. So things are really, really sweet and good in Wizards World, and we're really excited about the mixes that we're putting together for the new album and everything. So I would say buy that first album, but definitely check out the live stream because it's only going to be there till Friday, I think. It, and it's yeah, and God on the Highway is the third track. Not that God the, on the Freeway is like the third. Maybe that the is so song. classic. So you were there was no set list. He just he just said let's play that. That, that, that was very spur of the moment. I don't know exactly. The way we were recording it, we would record a couple of songs and then take a little break because it didn't have to be a concert because there wasn't an audience. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you'll see right. there's a couple of shots in the thing when you see it where they sort of pull away and there's just like a dog or, you know, the, the promoter's kid or just like, you know, you'll see a cameraman or whatever. But it's, we really did. We, we played the songs to essentially nobody. Um, except for these big, giant, beautiful redwood trees. Oh, Britt Govea, man. I mean, we we have a Ben. We're God just bless him. Yeah, bless him. Ben. <laughs> and and I'm gonna send. I'm gonna I'm gonna send you the Spirit of '76. Emil Richards gonna blow your mind. Maybe more than the than the Spirit album. A lot we did. We got it. We got some nice momentum here, man. So go and uh, bless you and go enjoy your day. And we'll do it again. Thank you so much. All God right. bless you too. Much love, dude. Late. Absolutely legendary character. Benji Knight uh, has had an impact on a lot of amazing genius characters and musicians by being himself. And uh, that's all we can ask for in this this day and age. Um, It's great to be back on Power Talk. Uh, We'll be back later in the week. Until then, this is the Jake Feinberg Show. Peace. Can't wait till I hit the ground One more thing